if you combine the three allied industry, academia, and producers, I think we'll make it happen and just come at it from a different angle. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry, one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like EveryPig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Just all, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in a high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Minitube, the worldwide leading supplier of systems for the field of assisted animal reproduction. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Merck Animal Health, driven by prevention. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is about every pig. The truth is precision swine production is not the future, it is the present. Every pig is the intelligent pig health platform. It is a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Request a free 20 minute demonstration at www.everypig.co slash swineit. Hi, I'm Laura Greiner. I'm your host for today's Swine It podcast. Today, I have Casey Bradley with me. Casey, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. And you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. We're finally getting some rain in Iowa, so it's always a good day for a little rain. Well, we've had a little too much here in Arkansas, so. <laughs> well, send it our way. We could use a little bit yet. Well, hey, I really appreciate you getting on with our podcast today and um, for our audience who may not be familiar with you, would you mind just spending a little bit of time introducing yourself? Yeah, I'm Casey Bradley. I guess the easiest way is I grew up in the swine industry, is born and raised in Southwest Michigan on a mixed crop and swine operation. My dad managed sows for McKinsey's and stamp families and used to be the largest county in Michigan, Cass County, uh, for, for pork production. And then um, bachelor's degree from Michigan State Went to work for New Fashion Pork, had to work on the largest hog farm I could find at the time and worked on their 8,000 site out in Wyoming and got my exposure to the good, bad and ugly, I would say, of pork production and sow farm management. Went back to work for Dr. Charles Maxwell, um, eight years as his research manager and worked on a master's and PhD. So I did a little bit of everything with Dr. Maxwell. And then from there, I've worked for Comeback Feeds, AB Vista, Perina in DSM. And now I've started my own business, the Sunswine Group. I guess in the past, I would be known as the phytase lady or the, you know, feed enzyme person that everybody called for information. So I've done a lot of work in feed additives in my career. And now with my business, I'm pivoting a little bit and doing some coaching and mentoring, uh, some research and development work, and some just general project management. That's wonderful. So I think that's really interesting that you talk about the progression of your career. And more recently, when I've been visiting with you, I know you've been very passionate about 
that education and, and mentoring. So could you talk a little bit more about what you're seeing in the swine industry and, and why you chose to, to focus on some of the, the activities you're doing, like the breaking grounds activity? Yeah, so in the swine industry, as I said, I've worked in all levels from either on boots on the ground to, you know, executive offices, explaining the next new feed additive and stuff. And throughout all my conversations, the number one challenge we have is a enough staff, right? We're always short staffed, we're lean. And then you take that to another step further. And if we had our ideal wish, we'd all have somebody like myself who's got grew up with pigs understands how to handle pigs and is an animal handler and has those experiences but that's not really the case of what the type of employee we get you take that to college and the work I've done eight years every two years I'd get a new batch of students to help me manage my research and so I got acclimated to the different challenges students have and you know working in academia and the industry I've really seen this disconnect between what your job's going to be and what you're taught in school. And so I see that a challenge no matter what area of our swine industry or animal nutrition world you work in, it, it's a challenge. And uh, I also see the students, you know, struggling a little bit more maybe than the past of the sink and swim type of mentality we used to have. And you didn't really have a lot of resources. You couldn't really call for help. You had to figure things out. And I think the the younger employees coming out have a little more challenge than I guess what we used to. And maybe it's the change of how we've taught them or how they've learned. And and I almost say as a mother, you know, been micromanaged by their parents that they're involved in all these activities. They're always busy on the go. Somebody's got their calendar booked. And then when you give them your, their own calendar and their own path, they struggle of where to go, where it was so controlled, maybe in the past. And so I've always had the passion of helping others. Uh, and uh, I'll be honest with you, it was a very small passion project, very small group I started out with, tested the waters, and it's really grown in popularity from 20 students now to over 260, 37 students across the US, and that doesn't include my international students. And so it's really grown. And then what I also I thought was amazing on the Breaking New Grounds, which is a small mentor groups that we're having right now, our pilot project on that, is how many volunteers I had to be mentors. It doesn't take much to ask. And I think that's amazing how many people want to help the younger generation succeed, get to know them. And in the past as a graduate student, I didn't, I didn't feel that right when I went to Midwest meetings and stuff and, and finding the mentors and I felt challenged to go up to even you, Dr. Greiner, and introduce myself back then. And so it's ultimately, hopefully, to make that an easier connection and, and transition. And, and I realized once I've gotten to know you and other professionals, we're not, we're not as scary as, as some of the students think we are. So how can we you know, help them succeed and create a program? As I said, it's a passion project. A lot of discussions around, do we turn this into a nonprofit and do some other things with it? And so I'm really excited about some of those opportunities. Wonderful. What are some common things when you're talking to the students that they're looking for? I mean, I think when I visited with people, sometimes, you know, we don't know what we want because we don't know what we don't know. But, you know, what are you hearing from the students today? Well, a lot of them is I, I feel they're not comfortable going to their major advisors, which I feel unfortunate um, talking about some of these questions. 
how do I apply for a job? You know, is my resume okay? Basic things like that. To what you said, they don't know what their jobs are going to be. Nobody thinks about things like, where do I want to live? What, what do you mean I can't be a pig nutritionist in California type deal? And, you know, things like that. Like the lifestyle doesn't match the job that they wanted. And they get on this path for so long. They thought they wanted to be this PhD swine nutritionist. And they keep going and they find out once they have that, that it doesn't fit their life. It doesn't, you know, I was fortunate. My husband picked up and moved with me across the country. Not all people have that opportunity. And then I also see it on the employer side. Employers aren't as accommodating at times either for situations such as that. So I see a lot of, um, I don't think they really know what they're getting into until they're in it. Very fair point. Do you spend much time talking to employers? I mean, I know you've obviously worked with undergraduate students over your career and and you've been in the industry, so you've worked with you know new hires, but have you talked to employers about what maybe our students are missing that as we do a mentoring program, we should be focusing on, you know, not just answering the questions about the job and the lifestyle expectations, but you know, how do we help? help give them the skill set that they might need that maybe we're not getting in in college yet? I haven't reached out to a lot of corporations yet to talk about that. I've really talked amongst my peers from saying maybe we need a residency program like doctors go through, things like that. Um, They're missing the context of what they do. They're really good trained scientists, but when it comes to applying this to the pig world, it it may not cross over. So talking more to my peers, not so much the VP level or HR professionals out there, but, you know, just talking to a lot of people, it's a lot of soft skills and then basic understanding of how production works and how to relate what, what they did in school to the real world. And, you know, we do a lot of internships and a lot of our internships are 12 weeks you go to work in a production system, you get to do a small research project, you get to explore the different jobs. But I'm going to tell you the best internship I ever had to decide that this is not the path I wanted to be on was Dr. Gary Dial putting me on the power washing machine and processing pigs for three months. And he wanted to know how long it would take for me to come to him to say that, hey, is this all I'm going to do with my career after, you know, I went out to New Fashion Pork, and then that's when they developed my, um, you know, manager trainee program back then of these are the different phases. This is what you need to learn to be, you know, a sow research manager for us. And that was probably the best thing because it cut my ego back, right? And, but also it made me realize there's no job that's not important in our industry from, the person who takes out the dead buckets to the power washers to the janitors in our offices or the receptionists. We're all important and we're all essential to making things work. And I think that was really important. So I didn't do a formal internship program in my career, but that experience was the best thing I ever did. So, and I'll be the first one to tell you that give me a power washer any day versus some of the stuff we have to do because your phone doesn't matter. It doesn't ring. No more emails. It's just uh, you and the power washer. Yes. 
Yep. There were days I loved to do power washing just to clear my head. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, it was great time just, just to focus in and think about whatever and, and try not to get, you know, sprayed in the face with feed when you hit the feeders. Right. Um, But yeah, you know, yes, I, I agree. And I think that's, that's really important is to expose our students to a wide variety of, um, of jobs and potential, because I can remember having interns and talking to them about, oh, this is what the logistics team does, or this is what HR does. And you can have a passion about animals and you can do some things that, you know, if you love people, maybe HR is really, you know, the better place for you than, than farrowing sows or, or other things. So I think that's great that you're giving those students a chance to ask those questions now and, and to interact with people in the industry. So, really be comfortable to ask those those tougher questions that maybe we don't want to ask when we're in an internship or ask our advisor. So I think that's wonderful. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot from them too. And, um, you know, I always go into every situation to try to learn as much as I teach. So it's been a great opportunity. Wonderful. We were also visiting a little bit, Casey, before we started our, our discussion here for the podcast about uh, just some of the things you're interested in, in terms of sows. I mean, I can remember you and I sitting around a table years ago talking about, I love sows and, and I know sows are a passion of yours. And, and over the years, we've talked multiple times about creating collaborations and, and programs. And, and really when you talk to people and you look in the industry, at least in the United States, and we talk sow research, commercial sow research, there's really not a lot of places that, that do it. Um, a lot of us will will do it in a commercial barn, but it's not designed for right. research, right? So um, what are your thoughts on sows and, and how we get that information to to really make a decision on on such an influential part of our industry? Well, I definitely think you hit the nail on the head with in- influential part. I think there's a lot we forget that if you set the pig up right from the sow perspective, that the other challenges we have down the road go away. And so, and we use the excuse, we don't have the labor, biosecurity, you know, different things and and costs because we don't have good economic models to consider new technologies or new ways of doing things. And we're so short staffed, right? So to me, that's kind of where my passion is sow research. I've been asking every company since I left my PhD to build me a sow research farm. Every genetics company, anybody that come along, you know, hey, we need to have a sow research farm. So it's not something I've been thinking about over the last year. This has been my passion, right? When you measure as many feet as I did for my PhD and you got to know the problems, you you have to be dedicated. And so I've struggled to put a brand new sow research facility in. If I just go lease a facility, just the equipment alone, we're looking at a million dollars just for the the type of feeding equipment to that kind of investment so obviously it it is expensive that's one of the challenges so i came up with this idea and we talked about it um, when i was at dsm and that's kind of why i jumped ship um, and went to dsm for innovation because we were supposed to have a regional application center we've always had this mindset of having what i call fetus to fork nutrition work understanding that carryover effect and 
you know, first time large corporation was going to back my idea, going to invest in sow research. And we wanted to not only have a sow research farm, but we wanted to have a sow research consortium. We wanted to lead the way in sow research. And I think DSM still has that, even though they've changed. But and I still have that passion. So instead of asking one company, I'm kind of formed a group called the Southwest Swine Nutrition Group. I have the University of Arkansas, Oklahoma State, Texas Tech, Texas A&M, and some young professors down there in Texas now, and how can we support them too, right? And everybody's closing down their salary research centers or, you know, scaling back. So the needs there, you know, a lot of universities need new south facilities to do research. So let's put the producers in the room. So we got Seaboard coming to the meetings, Hanor, Tyson, uh, Mashoffs, Carthage, joining in, talking to us about how we can really develop this. So I have this crazy idea that, that we're going to try to fund a massive soil research project. I'm not going to ask for pork board dollars. We're not going to ask for grants. We're going to find a way to do it. And I think it's going to be possible if we work together, right? And instead of work from the producer angle versus maybe a product-based type of research and really find a true solution. So we put enough smart people in the room, that's always great, but we also have to have the facilities and we have to have the doers. So I think if you combine the three, allied industry, academia, and producers, I think we'll make it happen and just come at it from a different angle. So I'm really hoping that takes off and grows, but at the same time, I'm still looking for my investors as I grow my contract research and research facilities here. So I'm not saying in the next year that I don't have a site up and going, um, but we'll just see kind of where the cards fall. I think that's really exciting. And, you know, certainly you're right. Sow research is not cheap and we need lots of numbers to really feel that we're seeing a true response to something, you know, total born alone is hundreds of sows. And, uh, you know, just to detect those small differences and we'll take small differences, you know, quarters of pigs and whole pigs. So I think that's um, a really interesting activity that you're doing. Just out of curiosity, when you're visiting with all these different groups, what are some common themes of, of issues that they're, they're really interested in tackling? I mean, I have a few in my mind as to what the big issues are in the sow industry right now, but What's what's kind of the conversation looking like? I guess sow longevity and sow mortality, you know, that was what my PhD work was in. And, you know, we had a much lower mortality rates back then, and we still were looking for solutions. Fast forward 10 years, the problem's grown, and, and we're still looking for solutions. And so, obviously, that's the number one thing. We hear a lot about E. coli challenges in the nursery, which you know, in my opinion, it's probably starting more in the sow, potentially. So you hear a lot of that. And then this question around guilt development, you know, nobody's raising their guilts properly and their finisher pigs and how can technologies, can we change that? Yeah. How do we even make economic models? Because I remember talking to Mike Brum about models on mortality and this and that. How do we really model this? What's the value and how to predict it and things? And, and back then we didn't have it. I think more as we get into data science, we're finding better models for things like that. But a lot of times that the hindrance of even looking at an idea 
was because it didn't show economic impact in their system today. And I think people are a little more open-minded about concepts that might may not pay for today, but may have value later in the future. So, yeah, I think that's great. Any thoughts as to why we haven't really moved the needle on cell longevity? We've, I mean, I did a talk not that long ago and was digging in the literature. And if you look at, at information from Denmark and you look at information, you know, from the US and you look 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it's the same conversation, right? It's all around lameness and and we've we've introduced organic minerals and we've introduced all these things into the industry. And yet we haven't really changed that needle. Have you put any thoughts into that yet as to why we haven't? Uh, that's a dangerous question of who I'm going to make happy on this phone call and who I'm going to make angry. And a let's just go back to my childhood of raising pigs outdoors. You know, they had to be sound to survive. And we maybe didn't keep them as long. We had different management practices, right? I think it goes back to stockmanship. I think it goes back to slowing down, taking our time and doing things right. Um, you know, I'm not saying we're, we go out on dirt, but <laughs> I, I remember people saying, oh, well, well, if we get rid of the crates, I can't raise sows. And I think we've proved that wrong with these large groups. And I've been in group housing and it's amazing to see that. And we do that for the consumer, but every time we learn maybe something new that we could do better, um, I'm not going to blame the gestation crate because I'm a proponent of that as well from, from a lot of different angles. But I think it gets back into what are we genetically selecting for? And, you know, we think it's cool to have 40 pigs per sow, and then you have everybody screaming at you, how do I take care of those 40 pigs per sow per year? So you create new challenges and this conversation, Jim Heimroll and I had, you know, when I was at Combeck is he'd say, instead of having, you know, 28, 30 good pigs, if it was more profitable for him to have 25 really good pigs, looking at it from sow to finish, that's something we look at. So have we, because of ego, I guess, or presumed profitability, gone too far and we're and we've created other problems and I remember a couple of years ago I presented at Midwest Swine Nutrition on sound mortality and things we're not looking at and I took the literature from the humans on the pelvic organ prolapses and it really goes to ligaments goes to collagen formation deficiencies in serine glycine vitamin c things like that and we're not doing any type of nutrition work in those areas anymore especially with sows and, no, and nobody wants to think about it and, you know, presented it. A lot of people thought some good ideas came out of it and then nothing. So, yeah, we're not asking the hard questions and we're not following up where we need to. And for some reason, there's this stigma that we can't cross species and learn from them or even humans. So, I mean, I think the answers in, in pelvic organ, organ prolapses or whatever we want to call those is in the human literature already. And there's, you know, we know zoralinone can be an issue with that, with the estrogen metabolism. And you look at female athletes that there's a certain part of their menstruation cycle to where they become prone to ACL tears, which is really prevalent in young female athletes and stuff. And, you know, you go into these pelvic organ prolapses and, you know, especially zoralinone and, and trying to correlate those or, or combine them. Is, is that what caused it? 
but yet you take a feed sample. You know, this happens all the time. Microtoxins, I got microtoxin, Casey. They're not eating. We take a feed sample. The feed's just fine. And, you know, two weeks later, we don't, even on something like that, we don't know the prolonged effects of maybe pulses of toxins or pulses at the right time. And then, you know, nothing to belittle the research we've done. We found water quality could be correlated. And, um, you know, the, the rectum pictures, I'm not, I can't remember the right term that they use for that, but I'm like, she's constipated <laughs> type deal. So I think, you know, we're looking for solutions in the wrong places and, or we're looking at the problem in a wrong perspective. Yeah. I think there's certainly a lot we can gain from, from human literature. I can remember years ago, we were sitting around the table and having a conversation about selecting the right guilt for optimal total born at the time is what we were chasing and went back to some of the, the European data of, of women that were starved um, for a period of time. And then their offspring and even their grandchildren were smaller statured and, and had challenges. And, you know, we talk about all that genetic programming and, and some of these things and, and it's a process, right, Casey? So mm-hmm. Something I do now in a nucleus herd is going to take three to five years for me to see downstream. And so patience is sometimes hard and, yeah. and to, to make one change and wait three years and not make another change in between is, is really very difficult um, in production systems. And so I think too, some of just, you know, trying to watch for the change is, is hard to do you know, disease comes in and, and leaves and diets change, right? Corn prices go up and we change our diets and just changing out our diets can change our vitamin levels and, and inherent mineral levels. And so um, I think you bring some really interesting points. I think we still kind of struggle with how we put it all together, right? Yeah. I think it goes into the point that we need some different tools, we need some different scientists out there, um, tools and scientists, people who can dig into the data and the numbers and really understand it. They may not understand production, but you team that person with somebody who has boots on the ground and can talk a little statistics and math and get the grasp of it. And I think that's where magic happens. So developing a very diverse workforce instead of the traditional nutritionist type of PhD program we have, I think you know, goes back to the student and, and the employee development. And I like the Google perspective as well, instead of, you know, hiring for bachelor's degrees, they're hiring people with like Python certificates if they just need a coding person. So I think when we talk about tools, that's people and technologies, you know, there's a lot of things we measure in the blood, in the milk, um, you know, measured minerals and hair, things like that, non-invasive things you know, the saliva test and things. I think things we're already doing, can we find new things to look at? New, what we're going to call biomarkers, I guess, is what the term is. And that could be very broad. But, you know, is there new tools that we need to develop to to understand this better? Zeralinone, for instance, if microtoxin is a continuous issue, is there a tool that we can make it a lot cheaper and kind of know what's going on on farm every day and, and track that, right? And then make some decisions. But we don't have a lot of the pieces to the puzzle to solve problems. It's like cell mortality is a very complex issue. 
And we, we say genetics is one component, feet, nutrition is another, guilt development's another, and, and so on. And, you know, you get into epigenetics and all that and, uh, you know, fetal programming and stuff. It's complicated. And so we need to think of the tools we need, need to create and have on farm. It can't just be some million dollar machine sitting in somebody's laboratory. It's like we need to have practical tools and assessments that we can do on farm. And then we need somebody sitting with a million dollar server or whatever spitting data back out telling us what direction we need to go into. So machine learning, I guess, would be fit into that as well. So very interesting concept. So hopefully some of what you're doing now can can kind of start to put put the boots on the ground, if you will, and get that information pulled together. I think that would be wonderful and a great step forward for our industry to help help our style longevity project that we've we've all been working on for many, many years. I think that's the next pressure we're probably going to have as industry is the activists have taken crates away, they've taken, you know, different things away. And same with Europe, you know, now from legislation perspectives, they have to, they can't do motherless rearing. They're trying to eliminate that from a welfare standpoint, you know, certain mortality issues from a welfare standpoint. And that's just coming here to the U.S. and the rest of the world is, as humans um, struggle with the ethics of producing animals for food and, you know, it's just challenges that we'll have to face, but we massively need tech and we need tools to, to meet these new challenges. And I think that's interesting. So when you think about your students and some of the training that you're doing, um, that could be really intriguing to tie that in, right? Once we identify that technology or those tools, to have that training for those students to kind of be that specialized person to go mm-hmm. out into the industry, I think would be really helpful. You know, we, we talk a lot about that as far as making sure we have people that understand the technology. I mean, even the simple things today, like the computer generated ventilation, you know, controllers and those types of things, we need people that understand it. Uh, but not just understand it, understand what it's providing us for that information. So I think you have a really nice kind of model set up that if you can implement here and then help mentor those students and educate them and get them the right pieces of information, you could create some really, really valuable employees down the road for the, for the industry. Well, that's the goal. As I said, you know, it's, Everybody thinks, oh, she's got so much going on, but it's really a master plan of how to connect it all back together and and bring it together in a a solution versus just one segment and thinking, you know, broader skate, broader appeal to that, I guess, or landscape. One of the things that I caught you saying a little bit ago was around um, that we do gestation pens now for the consumer, right? That's what the consumer wants. And certainly... We know some states are requiring that today. So it used to be what we would define as niche markets, but obviously now it's it's not niche. It's part of the industry and in, in the mainstream part. But what are you seeing in terms of, of niche markets today? I know you do a little bit of work with some of our niche producers and where are they headed and, and what trends are they seeing? Because again, I think that can sometimes be a good predictor as to where we might have to head you know, 10, 15 years down the road mainstream. 
Yeah. So what's been really cool about this last year is I still get to work with the integrated market. So I understand the, the high tech, the high production. And now I have smaller producers reaching out to me all the way from Nigeria or the Philippines asking for my help. So, and I had to remind my students what we think is a disruptor in our, our industry here in the U.S. It, um, you know, it's going to take something big, like just um, automatic feeders or, you know, gestation crate is a disruptor for producers in different parts of the world. So we, we have to understand technologies at different levels, depending on where you are in the world and, you know, what industry, but I've seen a lot of cool things. So I have some friends here and I think COVID as negative as everybody wanted to think it is, it's been an opportunity for us to think outside of the box and change. And, and I think you look at the farmer's markets, for instance, here, just in my community, they have gone to online farmer's markets. You order your stuff, they'll have it ready for you to pick up. You don't even have to walk around the farmer's market now if you know the producer you want to buy your pork from or your beef from or your potatoes from. You just plug it in, they'll have it ready for you. Um, then you've seen people grow more into share um, ownership. So they get subscriptions to their food. So they donate so much money to the producer. And then that week they, they get so much credit if they want to buy meat or vegetables. I've seen things like that work. Um, then I've seen, I've heard from Muncie Meats that, you know, they're doing an Amazon locker for meat and um, farm, you know, not just meat, but cheeses and different things from smaller producers. So I think they're coming together. They're using technology to help them. And, you know, it used to be kind of when you thought about niche markets and the farmer's markets, they don't, they don't use technology, right? Well, everybody com comes around with the debit chip card and puts it in their little square, or swipes it, and we go on. And so I think they're, they're using that too in production and working with our producer, Ron Simmons with Master Blend Farms out in North Carolina. We're trying to to mentor him to grow. He's doesn't have enough pork to meet the demand. And I see things like that. And then I hear a cool thing out of China that people can watch their pigs grow on the camera and uh, it's delivered to their, their door. So I think the common thread, no matter if you're niche or integrated, people want to know how their food's raised. They want to know who's raising it. Um, I think that's a neat thing, but I also see this, the shift of everybody wanting to raise their own food from people having uh, layers primarily. That's probably the easiest thing to start with is chickens, but people trying to find some acreage and even having pigs and, and things like that. So people are trying to get back into that mindset. And I think COVID's really allowed them to have a little more free time to to explore some of that and raising their own food. And so I see those trends of, People really, Ron talks about his integration is not the same as Smithfield in North Carolina. He, but he has integration in his system is that he's fully integrated from pork to consumer. So he interacts in all those levels and he promotes the people who buy his pork, the different restaurants. He goes in there and the restaurants then have more business coming to them because they're like, oh, I've saw, saw Ron at your a restaurant. I've never heard of it. They go in and they try it. I think some of those things like that would even help us. I, I did a, a, you know, the pork board did a pretty cool thing on wellness and trying to target different consumers when I had talked to Angie Krieger about that. 
And she's like, do some real pork videos. So I did um, a meal planning video. I think if we can do more of that and, you know, I love that, you know, avocation that goes on. I call it advocate, you know, advocacy, um, but ag focused. We, we want to see all these farmers out on tractors or dirt and with their pigs and stuff. And I think, how do we, you know, from what I'm seeing in the niche, how do we promote somebody like Dr. Laura Greiner or Casey Bradley, who's maybe not with those pigs every day, but, you know, doing a lot that influences food. So I think, you know, learning from that niche, knowing where your food comes from, that's why people are paying more money for that. They want to know, they trust them more. And so we need to do more of that. How can they trust us? I think that's great, right? What an awesome video. Just have a video series on how we feed pigs and and put it out there. And I've, I've seen a lot of them from Iowa Pork Producers and National Pork Board where, you know, it's our local farmer and he's in his feed mill and, you know, this is what I do to make feed. But I think it would be interesting to hear it from a nutritionist too, right? We have lots of dietitians in the human world that talk to people about how to eat. And so... I don't, and I know when I've talked to people about my own profession, they're like, you do what? And pigs really need a nutritionist to, to eat. And, and so I think it's fun if, when you can start to tell that story. So yeah, uh, definitely you tell them you're an animal nutritionist. And I, I try to just start with that basic level. They, they asked me about their fat dog right. <laughs> <laughs> or their obese dog. And then, um, or the human, I need to lose weight. And I'm like, I'm trained a little different. I'm trained to make you really big. So if you're a bodybuilder, I, I could probably help you. But the whole weight loss thing, not in my repertoire. <laughs> but yeah, just talk about it from a different perspective. And, and, and the key is, I think, is how do we get our influence past our small group, right? How do we get out? side of that and I've tried to do some of that I've had an apprentice I used from LA you know and, and I interviewed him and he loved learning about our industry but he has no clue about how his food's produced so we're, we're failing all these videos all these things that we're doing we are still failing our consumer um, people younger people for sure don't know anything about meat they don't probably know how to cook or prepare it let alone how it was raised. So they are easily influenced. And so how do we break that barrier? I think is another big challenge for us to overcome. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good one, right? Because we can make all the videos and, and put them on YouTube, but it still requires somebody to search. And most of the time we're not searching for that information, right? We're, we might be curious, but we may not actively be searching that information. And so how do we draw people to it? And I think that actually could be really interesting with your student population that you're working on and, and some of those soft skills, right? It's not just how do we communicate on social media to, to tell our story, but how do we connect to the people outside of our friend group? Mm -hmm. And I think that would be a really interesting piece to add. And I don't know how much you're doing on that right now, but your, your LA connection could be really interesting with that. Yeah. So I've been involved in different things through my career. Um, we did a STEM program through AB Vista with the Memphis school systems there. So I thought that was a unique approach to reaching out to students there for one thing. 
Um, I did some, I'm an artist, uh, so I, I make cards. If you can see my rooms, uh, not just an office, but it's my art studio. And so I try to meet people outside of what I do through my hobby. And I try to bring pork into it or animals. So if I write a blog on how I made this card, I put a little pork information. I try to spin it that way. And, but I also try to meet people that, you know, outside of where I work. And I think COVID's done that because I haven't got to see anybody I work with this year, but I've gotten to see other people who I normally don't interact with from church to the grocery store to just different things. And how do we advocate there every day? And I think we just need to be conscious of that. And I think people are eager to learn more and, and things like that. So there's a lot to be done and, you know, how we do it is a good question. Yeah, well, we, we've certainly have taken the gamut, haven't we, Casey? We started yeah, from yeah. talking about our students and, and how we mentor them to, you know, creating a, a sow consortium to help with sow longevity and address some of the issues, but then bringing that back into getting our students set up with the right technology and the tools to help move anything that we find forward, right, to move our progress forward. And then basically at the end, of how do we tell our story? Right? How do we get that beyond the ag industry and, and continue to push um, that information out so the people who are hungry for it can find it easily? It is time to our famous three. Ivonic stands for a holistic and sustainable value proposition for livestock production. It combines products and services and leverages digital solutions. This is all backed with high-value consultancy and deep customer understanding. Ivonic turns science-based efficient nutrition, sustainable healthy nutrition, and precision livestock farming into value for customers and consumers. An animal nutrition technology company offering innovative products and new applications for the swine industry. The combination of AB Vista enzymes, technical services, and nutrition expertise provides the industry with new opportunities to further improve production efficiencies. Fiber is receiving renewed interest due to its influence on the microbiome, and AB Vista has brought together research experts to discuss the industry's knowledge of fiber functionality and to introduce a Stimbiotic, targeted to improve fiber digestion. To request access, contact NAM at abvista.com. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. So um, I do appreciate your time today. And as we wrap up, I'd, I'd like to ask a few questions of you. Um, the first one I'd like to ask is, you know, what's your favorite swine resource that you go to? As I keep it right next to me is the NRC swine book. I always refer if I need to know there. Um, so that's my favorite resource that I use. I think that's one on every nutritionist shelf for sure. Um, how about um, a non-swine book? Is there anything that you're reading currently or a, a book online that you're listening to? I'm reading um, You're Not Enough and It's Okay. And I apologize if I don't know the author. And so she has a different perspective. All your coaches and mentoring says you're enough. You can do anything you want. And I think she's laying some groundwork to say, hey, we have to have our boundaries. Yet some of the same stuff, but sometimes it's okay not to be enough. 
And so I, I'm learning that perspective as well as I'm finding that um, with my passion project, I don't have enough time. So, you know, I, I need to figure out that it's going to be okay to not to be in the. Very good. Very good. And the last question I have for you is, is for some advice, of course, when we think about, or when you think about in particular people that you define as successful in this profession, what rate stick out to you? What are some key characteristics or, or, um, leadership skills that you've seen from those individuals? Uh, stubborn would be one. If you want to use stubborn is that they just don't give up on their ideas. They keep hitting the groundwork. They don't take no um, for an answer. Um, they also are passionate, you know, lots of passion in them. It takes a special kind of person to work in ag with what we face every day from market conditions to legislation and different things like that and then disease outbreaks. So I think it's a certain type of grit and passion you have to have for what you do. And I think the the number one trait I've learned in my career and I see in others that are really successful is people who listen and ask the right questions. Very good. Well, Casey, we do want to thank you for your time today. Uh, once again, we had Casey Bradley with us uh, from the Swinet podcast. So thank you, Casey. Wish you all the best. And thank you. And the last thing I want to say, if you get a chance, hug a pig today for me. <laughs> Love to. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact by bringing from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of swine nutrition on this seven-week-long elite online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding. It's conducted by myself, Dr. Marcio Gonçalves, and my world-class invited speakers. Additionally, you enjoy an exclusive community to exchange ideas. Go now to www.eliteswinenutritionist.com.